Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole, leading functional medicine expert and best-selling author, This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up? It's Dr. Will Cole and welcome to the art of being well. I am a functional medicine practitioner My day job is I get to talk to people around the world via webcam. I started one of the world's first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So I get to, we drop ship labs to them and we provide them a functional medicine perspective on why they're struggling. We deal a lot with people with autoimmune problems specifically, but other hormonal problems, other inflammatory issues, digestive problems. These are my people and I take it extremely seriously and it's a sacred responsibility for me to find out what's going on and to give them tools to have agency over their health and for them to take back what is theirs, their quality of life. And I, it is truly a passion of mine. So when I'm not consulting patients, I'm writing about it and speaking about functional medicine. So my first book is called Ketotarian, uh, second book, The Inflammation Spectrum, and my newest book is called Intuitive Fasting, which is out Now I'm so excited. I love writing about this stuff so much. And as a writer, you just get in that zone and that flow state. And I had a lot of fun writing about uh, this concept that I've honed over the years of just my clinical practice with all the books that I've written. This, it's a ripple effect of my clinical practice and just being immersed in functional medicine. But this book was actually the most fun to write. And it was just complete download uh, onto the pages or onto my MacBook, actually. But I'm really excited for you all to read it. And that's actually what we're going to largely be talking about today. We're going to talk more more than just intuitive fasting and what we're talking about in the book, but we're going to be talking about functional medicine, different labs. So definitely stay tuned for all the goodness that is to come in this conversation because it is a conversation. It's in in many ways, this episode is the uh, table has turned and I'm not the one asking the questions on the show as many other episodes are. It's sort of a back and forth between friends and it's with none other than Gwyneth Paltrow, who's a dear friend of mine and who actually wrote the foreword to intuitive fasting. So it's a conversation amongst friends about health, about wellness, about intuitive fasting, what that means, about different aspects of functional medicine. 
So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Gwyneth Paltrow. So explain to me what intuitive fasting is, as outlined by the book, you know. Yeah, I love functional medicine very much, and it's a passion of mine. And I love writing about it too. So there was multiple reasons why I called the book Intuitive Fasting. One, on a superficial level, it's a play on words. It's intuitive, intermittent, like the prefix INT. But beyond that, it is this paradox seemingly on the surface, right? Where how could fasting ever be intuitive? How could someone intuitively say, I don't want food? It seems like crazy, but it is something that I want people to build for themselves because I I think it's a great thing to say, I'm an intuitive eater, to eat intuitively. I want people to get to that place, but I don't want it to just be a nice sounding, appealing, you know, sexy sounding Instagram post. I want it to be something where you can actually build for yourself. And metabolic flexibility is fertile ground for intuition. Because when you're metabolically inflexible, when you're metabolically rigid, in sugar burning mode, you're hangry, you're fatigued, people are struggling with chronic inflammation, that is proverbial noise for the body. So you're not gonna have the discernment on what your body loves or what your body needs because is it stress eating or is it intuition? Is it hangriness or intuition? Is it hormone balance or intuition? I mean, this stuff, this imbalance, this, this physiological imbalance is a noise. And it's really hard to hear that still small voice of your intuition. So I want people to get to that place of intuitive eating, but they have to put the work in to get metabolic flexibility. So they actually have proper hormonal signaling. They have proper balance inflammation levels. They have proper gut-brain axis. All these things that you need to feel great, you have to have to really have that knowing of what your body loves and what it doesn't love. Uh, So flexible intermittent fasting is one tool to gain metabolic flexibility. So that's what I'm teaching in the book. I'll try not to make this whole thing about my personal journey. Let's do it. I wouldn't... (laughs) But um, I reached out to you a few months ago. I was having some health issues and we had done a series of labs a year before and then COVID happened and I, I didn't do my eating plan. And, you know, I just was like having alcohol and pasta all the time. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of hit a wall. So I reached back out to you and I was like, okay, it's really time time to try this and, and try because I have a lot of inflammation. It was time to really start healing the gut. You know, you started me on the bone broth cleanse, which was incredible, hard, but that process of letting my digestive system rest Mm -hmm. and for the lining to start to heal a little bit over those first six days, I felt like I never could have found or started to listen to that intuitive voice about what I wanted to eat or not eat had I not kind of done something a bit drastic to kind of do that reset. Mm -hmm. Because I think so much of coping with busyness and everything is food and it's mindless eating and everything. And then when you're not digesting well, it's affecting all kinds of things. So do you start with, you jumpstart right in, right? To start, so it's a mix of your, ketotarian diet with intermittent fasting, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And so tell me about the first week. And it's a four-week program. I'm very Mm -hmm. excited. I'm in week one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel amazing. 
but tell me a little bit about how you devise the plan and, and a little bit about week one. Sure. So all of this stuff that I do is a ripple effect of my clinical practice of me seeing patients and seeing that, that duality of what I do in functional medicine. There's the science and then the art. And the science are the labs. Like you mentioned, like we ran the labs. The, the science is health history. A science is the amazing, exciting stuff of intermittent fasting and what it can do for somebody's health. But then the art of it is making it realistic, making it approachable, making it flexible, um, and having people to grow in themselves and learn about their body to know, hey, I feel better when I did more of this. I didn't feel good when I did that. So I want people to find that grace for themselves. I want people to find that lightness, that rhythm for themselves. And we're all different. And that's another major heart of functional medicine. It's bio-individuality, is that we're all created differently. And we're all coming in at different points of our journey too, with our own set of issues that we're trying to improve. So the plan in the book is I needed to make it work for everybody. So I interwove all these things of, if this is you, do more of this. If this is you, do more of that. So it allows people to choose their own journey in a way through learning about their body. So I started the book out with a quiz and the quiz is adapted from questions that I ask patients. So people to learn how flexible their metabolism is. And then from there, they're going to cycle through these four weeks. So week one is the body reset week. It's a 12-12 fasting to eating window. It's very simple, but it's basically eating between 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. or 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Or if they're out late one night, it could be 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. It's not super punitive in that way, but you're pairing that with a clean ketogenic diet or ketotarian. So it works synergistically with intermittent fasting or specifically the type of intermittent fasting that we're doing over these four weeks. It's called time-restricted feeding. It's just specific windows. It's not counting calories. It's not being super specific. It's just strategizing and eating within specific windows, which researchers are really exploring the fact that this is a great way to lower inflammation and improve your health and become more metabolically flexible. And why? Can you tell me a little bit about the science behind why not eating is so healthy for the system? I think that there are many reasons for this, but I think if you look at the most basic level, digesting food requires a lot of energy. And it's good. And it's about the yin and the yang. It's both sides. It's the fasting and the eating, the fasting and the feasting. And humans, uh, researchers estimate that our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. That yet our world has changed very dramatically in a fair, very short period of time. So I want people to be more in alignment with our biochemistry. So researchers are exploring this genetic epigenetic mismatch, this sort of evolutionary mismatch where we have this growing chasm between our DNA, which hasn't changed in 10,000 years, and the world around us that went in context with the totality of human existence has changed very dramatically in a very short period of time. So fasting gives our body a break to repair. A, a quote comes to mind where it, uh, Paracelsus, he was one of the fathers of medicine. He was in Switzerland in the late 1400s. And he was known as the father of toxicology and the Martin Luther of medicine. He was a reformer of medicine. He called fasting the physician within, which I think summarizes it pretty succinctly. Wow. It's this physician within that now research is catching up with that antiquity that we know the pathways and within the science of it. But anecdotally, Paracelsus and Hippocrates, they did fasting for their patients. They just saw this really helped people. And now we know, okay, this 
what does fasting do? It gives your body a break to repair. It's almost like this proverbial siesta for your gut microbiome. It's this repairing rest, uh, this, this resetting time. And uh, it also increases something called beta-hydroxybutyrate or BHB. That's the ketone. Both the clean ketogenic diet, like a mostly plant-based ketotarian one, and intermittent fasting both increase beta-hydroxybutyrate. And it is this signaling molecule that works on all these inflammatory pathways. So if someone's struggling with inflammation, it's a natural endogenous thing that you can tap into this physician within to lower this inflammation. So it works on all these pro-inflammatory pathways that are really high in a lot of people. So some, not to get super wonky with this, but NF-kappa B, COX-2, these inflammasomes that are really high in people with autoimmune conditions or fatigue or depression, anxiety, these are all inflammatory things. And we can lower this and it's completely free. People can just do it for free. Just flexible, light breaks from eating to allow your body to repair. How do you define metabolic flexibility. Like I've noticed over the past couple of years that my metabolism has slowed down. I know a lot of that is like perimenopause. I'm 48 years old. And I know that, you know, women tend to lose like up to 30% of their metabolic speed once we enter this phase of life, et cetera. So I know some of it is that. I think maybe some of it is because I got COVID. My physician in New York was saying that that was affecting a lot of his patients' metabolisms as well. Mm -hmm. But what I really noticed was the snap back that I used to have, right? You know, if I gained some weight and I wasn't happy, like I could quickly, you know, eat really well for a couple of days, exercise a lot, and it would all be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not happening over the past year. And this has been incredible. I've lost 11 pounds since I started with the bone broth. And this week one, I gained a lot of weight over COVID. So is that part of a lack of metabolic flexibility? And will this help me get it back? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's exactly what, that's a good telltale sign that there is room for improvement as far as metabolic flexibility. So what I mean by that is there's two main forms of fuel. Uh, From a metabolic standpoint, you can either be in sugar burning mode or fat burning mode. And sugar burning is I just ate something. And so my body's using that as fuel. Yeah, it's primarily, even on a cellular level, mitochondria, our cellular energy factories are primarily using sugar to produce ATP. Um, So that is akin to kindling on a fire. We know kindling on a fire, it's going to create light, but you have to keep putting kindling on the fire or that light's going to go out. And that's people's energy. Are they going to get hangry and irritable? They have cravings. And that's in that, that state of sugar burning mode. Now there are better forms of sugar burning mode. There's cleaner kindling, like a whole foods diet that's high in carbs, but it's whole food, plant-based carbs, sugar, fruit, smoothies, all that stuff, starches, legumes, that's cleaner kindling, but it's kindling nonetheless. So there's an alternative from a metabolic standpoint, it's putting a log on the fire. That's keto adapted or fat adapted, but flexibility, metabolic flexibility. I want people the opportunity and the ability to burn both. And what the researchers refer to it as metabolic indecision. They, they, they're not fully metabolically flexible. They're kind of stuck in this metabolic purgatory and they're bound by that next meal. They're bound by cravings. And that's really not a place of enjoyment. I mean, feeling miserable uh, to your next meal is not a place of grace and there's not a sense of peace. So I really want people to enjoy their life. I want them to enjoy food. Um, You just have to put the time in to allow your body to get there. 
So the signs that you might have a blood sugar imbalance are what? Well, it could start with that hangriness, which is hunger and angry's evil spawn. Uh, that's one sign where if you miss a meal and you just like need that snack or you are thinking about the next meal, people that have something called reactive hypoglycemia, they wouldn't know that except on the lab and a health history, but they feel like blood sugar roller coaster. They feel uh, low blood sugar. They feel weak and shaky if they miss a meal. They have uh, different levels of chronic inflammation, and that could look different for different people. Um, and obviously labs would show us too a bit more. We would be able to look at glucose, A1C. We'd be able to look at uh, triglycerides and inflammation markers. But those are some signs. I would really look at fatigue, cravings. Those are the big ones. Right. What is brain fog? I mean, how does that kind of play into all of this? And there, I know that there are a lot of factors that cause it. I have it so bad today, by the way. I'm like, I can barely string two words together. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're building metabolic flexibility for you. So sometimes when you have that kindling off the fire, and like I mentioned, you know, to you a while ago, is that you have to make sure you're eating enough food because sometimes when you're off of that kindling, you have to make sure you're eating enough nutrient-dense healing foods. Otherwise, you are in this metabolic purgatory where your body's not fully fat adapted yet. You're hypocaloric. So make sure that you are already eating enough food when you are eating. Right. Um, but brain fog, I mean, that can look like that. If someone's blood sugar is irregular, that can definitely create some brain fog for sure. And then there are different types of brain fog. Brain fog is a very general term that just is a fogginess of thinking, trouble with word recall, name recall, not fully engaged in the present moment. So there's many different reasons why somebody could have brain fog. And it's not always directly proportional to fatigue. It's really interesting when I talk to patients, it's like some people have decent energy, but it's still the brain fog is there. And then sometimes it is directly proportional to their fatigue. So people describe it in different ways. But there are studies to show that brain fog is associated with some level of neuroinflammation. Basically, there's some hypothalamic or some brain inflammation that is associated with some people's inflammation uh, levels in their brain. So we want to be working on things in our life that can lower that inflammation to start having sharp thinking. But beta-hydroxybutyrate, that ketone, actually can pass through the blood-brain barrier and provides the brain clean fuel. So it's really an amazing fuel source for our brain. But for the mitochondria to start building the proper infrastructure to be able to burn fat for fuel, it takes time. So you're in week one. We'll get there. Um, but people just need to give it the time. Hi, I'm Pia Berengini, a creative director of LPA, an entrepreneur, a wife, and a dog mom based in Los Angeles. This is my new podcast, Everything is the Best, where we basically ask interesting people, how did you go from zero to yacht? I'm always curious how the hell people became successful, and I figured you would be too. Get on the internet with me. Let's laugh, let's cry, let's overshare, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. It's all for you, baby. Thanks for listening. Love you, mean it. And what about the other things that I know cause brain fog, like whether it's maybe heavy metals or, you know, mm -hmm. or chronic viruses or autoimmune yeah. stuff that's going on. Does yeah. this kind of diet help kickstart healing in those mm. areas as well? 
Absolutely, because it is that physician within, like Paracelsus said. So the best thing you can do, like the cornerstone foundational stuff you need to do for someone to have immune health is to have metabolic health. So they're so intertwined. And that's the reason why many people, not everybody, but many people that have the really severe deadly, dangerous forms of COVID, they're the ones that tend to be more metabolically unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So the more insulin resistance, the more inflammation, that's increasing risk factors profoundly. So what, what can we do today to really improve metabolic flexibility is intermittent fasting. It's other tools that I talk about in the book to gain that metabolic flexibility. And when you look at other immune-mediated issues, you mentioned like chronic viral infections that I see a lot clinically or someone that has autoimmune issues, all of those things are products or they involve the immune system. So metabolic flexibility is a really good way to help balance and support a balanced, healthy immune system. Mm. So a, a lot of other types of intermittent fasting programs, they focus on calories, calorie mm. restriction. Yours is this high fat, low carb diet. So is there something special about the combination of, you know, time restriction and this sort of high fat, low carb that you have found works particularly well together? Absolutely. They work synergistically to amplify themselves because both the clean ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting both increase beta hydroxybutyrate. So you're not fasting your way out of a poor diet. You're actually, when you are breaking your fast, you're continuing those benefits. Mm -hmm. So that signaling molecule, meaning it does really cool things for our health is produced, beta hydroxybutyrate is produced, and it is improving mitochondrial biogenesis, actually making new mitochondria, even when you're eating. It is improving autophagy or cellular recycling, sort of our body's anti-aging pathways. You're doing that even when you're eating. So even when you're breaking that fast, you're still leveraging the benefits of that. The way that I advocate it in intuitive fasting is a cyclical ketotarian approach. So many women do better with not always being in ketosis. So they'll increase their clean carbs around their period or they'll increase their clean carbs around their ovulation time. Uh, they're not always in ketosis. So think maybe increasing sweet potatoes or fruit or rice. It's something that you and I talked about. You don't always have to be in ketosis. As somebody who has, you know, experimented with a lot of different ways of healthy eating and eliminating certain things and trying mm -hmm. certain things. It was really interesting to me to see that because I've never done keto before. I've never tried it. Mm -hmm. And and you you sort of recommend a more plant-based keto, but there is bacon in there. There's some mm -hmm. good quality organic grass-fed beef in there. So mm -hmm. a lot of people think, my gosh, well that that doesn't sound like healthy eating to me. So mm -hmm. can can you explain a little about how that works? So you can have any type of ketogenic diet as long as it's high fat, moderate protein, low carb. So there are different iterations of the ketogenic diet. So ketotarian is a mostly plant-based ketogenic diet. So it's mainly vegan keto, pescatarian keto, vegetarian keto. Uh, so that is what I'm advocating for people to have an intuitive fasting. And how are you getting those proteins if you're doing a, a vegan one? There's mm -hmm. no animal protein. So how yeah. do we force that? Well, I'm advocating in the book for people to be open to being mostly plant-based, but not entirely plant-based. I want people to be eating nutrient-dense food. But with that said, I wanted to give people that are, for whatever reason, entirely plant-based, still give them options. So they would go for organic 
fermented non-GMO soy, things like tempeh and natto. But I really, I think the conversation that I'm having with people in the book is to be open to other foods that are maybe not entirely plant-based, but you still can be mostly plant-based. So from a bioavailability standpoint, I really think it's good for, for optimal nutrition. So we're talking about the benefits of egg yolks and the choline that's in them and the omega fats that are in them or the um, beneficial omega fats in wild caught fish. And in intuitive fasting, it's not entirely ketotarian. So I wanted to have this flexitarian option for there too. So you mentioned like the grass-fed beef. So in people that want to have that, I want them to have that option because the benefits of time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, actually, if you look at the research, most of them shows you actually don't have to change your diet that much at all. And it's just the strategy of the specific eating windows that's the benefit. But they're looking at that in research to see the benefits. Does fasting hold on its own without changing your calories or changing the foods that you eat? We know that it does in the research, but I'm a functional medicine practitioner. I'm not going to advocate for people to just eat junk food and then fast. So right. I, let's like get the benefits of both. Why? Will you write that book next for me, please? <laughs> fast your way out of a poor diet. Will you write it with me, co-author? <laughs> as long as there's wine, cheese, and crackers in it. <laughs> now I'm sleeping really well, but for the first week, I had a really hard time sleeping. Mm -hmm. What do you attribute that to? Well... I think there's a lot of shifts that are happening um, metabolically. Your whole gut microbiome, your hormonal signaling pathways, the release of a lot of different gut-brain axis communication lines is completely shifting. So a lot of times it has to do with serotonin and melatonin. Melatonin is converted from serotonin and 95% of that is made in the gut and stored in the gut. And that's why the gut is referred to many reasons as the second brain. I mean, most of our neurotransmitters are made and stored in the gut. So to have melatonin, that sleepy time neurotransmitter hormone, your, your gut's gonna be shifting. That could be impacting melatonin and clean carbohydrates your body can use clean carbohydrates to really support proper melatonin levels. So that's why it's not a no-carb protocol. And just for people to know, like the protocol that I gave to you, I designed it a little bit more succinctly because I saw labs and I saw some specific things we needed to work on. Not everybody has to do brothing and souping even though that is beneficial for many people. But for the sake of the book, I didn't see everybody's labs. So they're keeping it a little bit looser. They're not going to be a more of a gut-centric protocol that you were on. But it's a great thing to do, right? To take oh, a week and just do, regardless, just to do brothing and, and souping. Yeah. Recommend that. Totally. And I have a whole section in intuitive fasting. It's the actually the break the fast section that's all soups and stews because it, it's so gentle it's a great thing to do exclusively like I recommended that you do, but I also put it in the book because it is a great way to transition out of your fast for that same reason. It's so gentle. So for those deeper fasts that I have in the book, like week three is an almost OMAD approach. OMAD is an acronym that stands for one meal a day. So when you're in that deeper 20-hour fast, 22-hour fast, I think soups and stews and using one of the recipes in the book is a great way to do that. What I recommended for you to just do that exclusively for a while. I'm so fascinated to, to see how it turns out. And so before you wrote the book, did you kind of within your clinic do labs and then put people on this and then do labs at the end? That, yeah, absolutely. That's all I do. I'm like, I've been immersed in this stuff. So for the past like decade, I have implemented the protocols in the book, 
ran labs at the baseline, and then in a few months we retest, and sometimes we retest repeatedly, oftentimes we do retest repeatedly to track that data. And those labs are a reflection of why people feel the way that they do. So to see inflammation levels come down, to see health markers improve, the body is so amazingly resilient. So I'm excited to see what the readers see, because it's it's one thing to be a clinician and like be able to control everything, but to see someone with the readers, and I've been able to see that with my last two books too, is people take the stuff on their own and have agency over their health and not have a doctor. Many of the stuff you don't need a doctor for, they can start leaning into it by themselves. And is this the, the type of program that you recommend for anybody? Is there anybody that shouldn't do a program like this? Well, the way that I advocate it in intuitive fasting, it's very flexible. And I'm having the conversation with the reader every week over the four weeks is check in with your energy, check in with your sleep, check in with your digestion. Maybe they need to repeat week one twice. Maybe they need to repeat it three times. So in many ways, it's self-paced. They don't have to like do it in four weeks. And some people, based on where they're starting at, they may want to take it a bit slower. So we're talking about very vacillating, ebbing and flowing, fasting and eating windows. You're never doing anything for too long. So I really wrote it to be very inclusive. The only group of people that I would say, talk to your doctor are people with eating disorders. People that have eating disorders, talk with your doctor, talk with your eating disorder specialist. With that said, I've had countless of patients that have had eating disorders in the past and their eating disorder specialist or their doctor gave them the go ahead and they feel better than ever because why? They have better blood sugar regulation, they feel better, their mood's more sound and resilient. That's all amazing for their recovery because they're not hangry, right. they're not having cravings. That is firm foundation for them to work with their specialist in overcoming their disorder. It's so interesting to me how this really does, is able to reset the body and kind of get mm -hmm. us closer to, it's, it's almost sort of our natural state, you know? And mm -hmm. so you, you can't help think about the food system and the way that we've been conditioned to eat and what we've been conditioned to eat. I was talking about this last night at dinner when I was having a jicama fish taco with nothing fucking on it, Will, except <laughs> some lime. Um, it was actually so delicious. It was like the best thing I've ever had. <laughs> but it's certainly in my generation, and hopefully I've been able to affect this differently for my kids. We grew up with multiple courses of antibiotics and cans of SpaghettiOs and mm -hmm. fast food and super processed flour. It was all just normal um, mm -hmm. to have all that kind of stuff. Even though my mom, I have to say, was, was pretty good and kind of got on a health kick with us on the early side. So how are we especially this generation, like my generation, are we kind of more predisposed to get metabolic inflexibility, to have blood sugar problems? Like is mm -hmm. our gut, has it just been created over decades of, you know, all of that kind of way of eating to kind of set us up for failure? Well, we have, I mean, our microbiome starts forming in utero and we get our first round of our microbiome actually when we're born. So babies that are born vaginally versus C-section, they're going to have different uh, microbiomes. And then like you're right, before we're even making any decisions in our life, how are we fed? Were we breastfed or not? Like all of these things are determining this gut garden, this microbiome. 
But the research shows that while a lot of our microbiome is set in place when we're really young, it's still amazingly resilient. And a lot of research shows that it can start changing pretty dramatically in a pretty short period of time. So while, yes, we can't change the past and there's a lot that we can do as parents if we know this stuff to improve, but the body is amazingly resilient. And me as a parent, like I wish that I know my kids are 14 and 11. I wish that I knew the things that I know that now then, but we, when we know better, we do better. I think my aunt, my Angelou said that. And I think that it's not about shaming people. We all could have done stuff better in our past as parents or just people. So it's what can we do today to start building a healthy gut garden, a healthy microbiome. So that is, that is my experience is none, really none of my patients had great childhoods when it comes to food. We all ate pretty similarly, some better than others, but still it's like, what can we do today? And we have to do something different to see something different. And you have seen the gut rebound, even in really dire situations. Absolutely. I mean, most of my patients are really sick people. I mean, they're people struggling with autoimmune issues. You mentioned like the epidemic that we're seeing right now of autoimmune conditions. It's estimated that 50 million Americans have an autoimmune disease and that millions more are somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum where they have autoimmune components to their case, but they're falling through the cracks of conventional medicine and largely delegitimized by their doctors. And they're, they're told you're just depressed, you're just getting older, it looks autoimmune, and they really have no home. So these are the people I have a heart for and a passion for. And the body is so resilient. I've seen the worst of cases reclaim their health. It's These are not quick fixes. These are journeys. But they're ones when you're consistent and you show up for yourself, you can start to move the needle in a positive direction. How long does it take to truly repair a gut in the worst case you've seen? 18 to 24 months is typically where we see the sweet spot for most people. And that doesn't mean that's a finite thing and you've arrived at that 18 to 24 months. It means that I've seen that be the sweet spot for most severe autoimmune issues get to the place of a very common sentence. They say it in different ways, but the sentiment is, I have a lot more good days than bad days. And the bad days are not nearly as bad as they used to be. That's kind of where I found. And then their journey doesn't end then. They keep leading into this stuff over time. And then for people who have more mild gut issues, like we all probably do, and mm-hmm. aren't kind of indexing too high on the inflammation spectrum, how quickly, like say, you know, 25 year old person with like, how quickly can they rebound? Well, there's studies to show that the microbiome will start to change in a couple days. So measurable objective changes, movement, movement in the right direction, as far as improving gut microbiome balance, as far as lowering inflammation levels. So improving intestinal lining integrity, all of these things have been shown to improve, at least start improving pretty quickly. So Over a month, you can make considerable changes if you're somebody that's struggling with some levels of inflammation, but it's not severe. What do you guys eat at home? I mean, what do you feed your 14 and 11 year old? Because I can tell you it's not. (laughs) Well, my daughter's actually very healthy, but my Mm -hmm. my 14 year old son, I don't know. My 14 year old son, he is gluten free, but he has, like, that's his line. And I don't, I'm not super dogmatic with it. To me, I'd rather allow him to learn as at his age, like what, what are his parameters? Like own it for himself. And I fed him a different way when he was younger, but as he's getting older and he's making these decisions, I think we as parents know our kids 
and we can speak age appropriately, get to their heart and educate them in, in a way that makes sense to them. And then I want to give him the grace to kind of do what he wants to do. We eat a certain way at home, but if he's with his friends or at somewhere, I'm not super obsessive about it because I think that we as parents can create this good foundation and, and eventually it'll click for them. And it won't be like, oh, mom and dad saying this. It'll just be like owning it for themselves. So they eat similarly to the recipes in the book, but it's just looser. You have to make it age appropriate. And there's some wiggle room there, but that grace and lightness that I want for my patients, I want it for my kids too. I don't want them to feel like it's me shaming them into wellness. That's never going to happen. I want them to have that flexibility to learn about their body, learn how food makes them feel. Cause I've seen that sometimes and we use it as a learning experience. He, he comes home, he's like, oh, I feel like crap. I'm like, okay, was it worth it? Maybe it was worth it. Then eat it, move on. Don't beat yourself up, right. but maybe it's not worth it. And I've seen a lot of times it's not worth it. He won't go back to have as much of it. He'll have less of it now because he doesn't want to feel like that. It's wonderful and such a nice way to teach children and, and mm -hmm. to empower them, you know, with what they're finding, how their body's responding to something. Yeah. Mine just right now is still powering through nuggets and French fries. <laughs> and you can get, I mean, this is the cool time that we live in is like when I was growing up, when you were growing up, we didn't have the options that they have now. No. So now you can get like really good organic almond flour crusted nuggets, way better alternatives than we had. So to me, that's what we kind of fill up in the house, at least where it's like the stuff that they want that their friends have, but it's better alternatives. It is pretty incredible. I mean, when I started on my wellness journey back in the day, aside from the fact that people thought I was crazy, it was really hard to source Definitely alternative stuff. There was no alternative to dairy, basically, mm -hmm. whatsoever. And there was no alternative to a lot of this stuff. Now, it, it really is. I mean, it's so easy to go into the market and be able to make easier choices. Yeah, people can go to Aldi and Costco and Walmart and get organic stuff and get things yeah. that could you ever imagine, or even gas stations have organic things. So it's we have a long way to go still, but it's a lot better as far as options and access. Can you tell me a little bit about the recipes in the book? Because they're great. Are you a cook? Are you, do you have someone help you develop them? And how does it work? They're really great. I am not a cook at all, but I look at the macros. I look at the ingredients and I have a few ideas that I like personally that I'll just like send to the team. We have a team of recipe developers that make it look beautiful and do all the pretty pictures and all the stuff that has to happen when it comes to making a book with recipes. But I love so many of the recipes in the book. I love the avocado fries. Uh, they These are freaking amazing. Have you ever had avocado fries? No. They're avocados that are crusted with almond flour. And there's the chipotle aioli dressing. I love that. They're better than well, close to being equal to like a sweet potato fry, which I love sweet potato fries. And these are like pretty close to that. I love the pesto zoodle bowl um, with like zucchini noodles. Uh, there's so many good recipes in the book. And we apply, I put them in a meal plan and that's where I'm really at. I'm looking at the macros. I'm looking how to get the nutrition in, in this specific window. So the clinical nutrition side of things is where I really put my focus in. And then the recipe developers make, make it all taste good. Hmm. In terms of hormone imbalance, in the book, you talk about intermittent fasting and how it affects hormone balance. And I would just, I would love to ask you a little bit about that. 
aside from aging, like why do women get out of hormonal balance, optimal hormonal balance? I have so many friends who are having issues with fertility, et cetera. Well, the the most basic answer, and I'll dig in from there, is metabolic inflexibility, metabolic mm-hmm. rigidity, because we've had years living as adults of a certain way. And these are chronic things that take time to get to the place where they're at today. So by the time somebody's diagnosed with something, whether that be a chronic hormonal problem, a metabolic issue, or an autoimmune condition, research estimates it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis is when things were brewing on this inflammation Mm -hmm. spectrum. So, and there are millions of people that are not diagnosable. I think that's a really important point to highlight. It's that these people that are dealing with certain levels of inflammatory problems or hormonal imbalances, which are largely driven by inflammation. I mean, we're talking about hormonal imbalances. A lot of that has to do with inflammation going on in the body that is impacting the signaling pathways between the brain and the endocrine system. So we have what's called the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, and the adrenal axis. These brain endocrine rhythm communication lines are oftentimes dysregulated because of chronic inflammation. So many people just generally are dealing with chronic inflammation. It's just manifesting in many women over time, different levels of hormonal imbalances. Is that why women have so much more autoimmune than men? Yeah. Female hormones are definitely part of that because you have the whole menstrual cycle that's impacting the immune system. And that's why many women will notice that autoimmune conditions are triggered around their pregnancy or after birth or around menopause, you will see this fluctuation because the hormonal, like almost like the tides of the ocean are impacting the immune system. And also women's immune systems have been shown to be more overactive. So that's another reason why more women than men have autoimmune conditions. And many of these autoimmune conditions are X chromosome linked. And there's something called microchimerism, which is one aspect that researchers are exploring as to when babies are growing in the mom's womb, they're exchanging cells. And when the baby's born, those cells are supposed to all be expelled. But sometimes those foreign cells of the baby aren't fully gotten rid of. So then the immune system says, this is a foreign cell. And there's something called molecular mimicry. It's sort of the case of mistaken identity where it attacks that cell and then can attack the thyroid or attack something else. And that's another seminal event of what can trigger autoimmune issues. How, how can people get tested for inflammation? There are basic tests you can start with and just ask your local PCP, primary care physician. You can ask them to run high sensitivity C-reactive protein. We want that to be under one. Homocysteine to be under seven. Ferritin is a biomarker for stored iron. So we want to make sure ferritin is optimal, but spiked iron, like really high iron can be what's known as an acute phase reactant. So it's basically in states of inflammation, you can see ferritin spiked. Those are basic labs that basically anybody can have ran and they're covered by insurance, largely speaking. You explained to me that in functional medicine, the reference ranges that you look at on the labs are different than in a regular doctor, which might cause, you know, your regular doctor to be like, oh, you're, you're fine. Mm -hmm. So tell me the difference in functional medicine and a more sort of Western approach and how blood tests are read. The reference ranges that people have from their primary care physician, if they go to a Quest or LabCorp or 
their doctor's office. We look at those in functional medicine too, obviously, but they're based on a statistical bell curve average of the population of that specific lab. So people that are predominantly going to labs are sadly people with health problems. So there's a lot of people that know intuitively in their like gut instinct, there's something's off, this isn't normal. And they go to the doctor and the doctor says, you're just depressed, here's an antidepressant, or you're just getting older, you're just a new mom, you need to lose weight, all these well-intentioned reasons as to, you know, how could this person be having symptoms despite these quote unquote normal labs? Because they're trained in the standard model of care to diagnose the disease and match it with a medication. So if something's within that reference range, there's really nothing for them to do within their training and within that model. So just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. And comparing yourself to people who go to labs is no way for you to find out what's going on. Why do I feel the way that I do? So in functional medicine, we're using a thinner range within that larger reference range. So that's the functional range or where your body is functioning the best. So the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM, that's who's trained myself, my team, and the entire, all the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic's Functional Medicine Center. We all use the standardized range to look at the gray areas and life in many ways exists on a spectrum and our health exists on a spectrum too. So to understand these nuanced gray areas and put it in context with their health history is really illuminating for people because it's like, okay, it's validating because they already know something's not right, but they're delegitimized so much by so many practitioners or doctors unintentionally, it's not intentional, but the system's looking at the black and the white, and the white. they're not looking at the gray areas. So I, I see this unintentional many times, but a delegitimizing of women particularly because this is what's who's being impacted by this largely with autoimmune conditions and brain health issues like anxiety and depression. And they're not given the, the nuanced attention that they need. And when you take that little margin in the middle mm-hmm. and you expand it, does it sort of populate with more information about what's going on with people? Absolutely. Like if you just look at a regular result form, doctors are typically looking for the highs and the lows. They're looking for the bold fonts. And oftentimes those things aren't going to be there. So you have to look at the highs and lows. Of course, if something's pathological, we're looking at that too. But when you put it through and look at those labs through a functional medicine lens, it is so illuminating. It's like taking the blinders off and just seeing all this nuanced variables that need to be taken into consideration. And the body's so brilliantly interconnected. It normally is this confluence of factors, this perfect storm of variables. So it's A, interpreting the labs that are ran appropriately and looking at the optimal ranges, not just the labs reference ranges. But two, it's running more comprehensive labs. It's not just looking at the basic stuff because all they need to run in the standard model of care is the basic labs to give you the appropriate medication. So it's wholly adequate if all you're giving is medications for the appropriate things. But it's just an incomplete perspective of human physiology to just run the basic stuff, to scratch the surface. That works for the big things that they're trying to rule out, heart disease, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, that kind of stuff. But the deeper stuff, the stuff that goes missed, it needs not only good interpretation of the labs, but it needs a more thorough look. Mm. And a lot of these are conventional labs. They're not really strange, out-of-the-box stuff. They're conventional labs you can get from Quest and LabCorp. They're just not typically ran in the standard model of care. Mm. How did you become a functional MD? Well, I always was interested in 
health and wellness. Um, I grew up in a home that my parents were interested in health and wellness. My dad was a, a bodybuilder in the 80s and 90s. I thought it was normal to like, have your dad like lubed up with baby oil, <laughs> this like turquoise speedo <laughs> in the 80s. And like my mom would film him to get like the poses right by the pool. So I was in that world of bodybuilding, which isn't necessarily health and wellness, but my dad was interested in health and wellness too. So that was really early on. I saw the way that I was eating versus the way that my friends were eating at school. And then I kind of went away and did my own thing. Like we were talking about with our sons at 14 years old, like I still ate the standard Western diet for a time because I wanted to do my own thing. But that foundation that I was talking about that I hope my son has, and I hope that your kids have as well, is that they'll go back to that when they start to own it for themselves. And it's not just some thing that mom and dad do, it's something they own for themselves. So that was it for me. I I, I really just something clicked where I was really interested in this stuff, really passionate about it. So I went to uh, Southern California University of Health Sciences outside of LA in Whittier. And I heard of this guy called Datis Karazian who had gone to my school. He was older than I was. He was talking about this field of healthcare called functional medicine. And even today, Datis still teaches for the Institute for Functional Medicine. He's kind of a forefather in this space, a leader in this space. So that's really how it honed in. And then I graduated and I moved from LA back to Pittsburgh where I'm from. And I was writing about this and teaching about this and speaking about it online. So there'd be people in different states and countries that needed access to this. So I've only practiced as telehealth. We've only consulted people online and sometimes people would fly in or drive in for their first visits. But uh, yeah, this has always been my lane and something that I really enjoyed. Is the fundamental principle that when you kind of let the body tell you what's wrong with it and then address, kind of put it in its back in its most natural state. It knows what to do. It knows how to heal itself. Yeah. It, it's it's a really interesting thing is people ask me, well, does anybody have these optimal labs? Like when we put them on the spreadsheet, like I, I showed for you, like we put all the labs on a spreadsheet, we color code them so you can see visually what's optimal, what's not optimal. People ask me, well, can I ever get all the labs in the optimal zone? The answer is yes. There may be a few fluctuations here and there by tenths of a point. Yeah, that's normal. You have to put that in context. But largely, when you deal with the big pieces of the puzzle, physiologically, whatever is going on for that person, when you really give it the attention it needs, the body is so amazingly resilient that you could see these things fall into place. So it's a journey for sure. It's not a quick fix, but it's something where if we give enough thoughtfulness, give enough time, give enough attention, give enough pivoting when it's appropriate, uh, you can really powerfully improve one's health. And how can anybody who's listening, who this resonates with thinking like, gosh, I'd really love to find a functional MD and get a bunch of labs done. And I don't feel totally well. And my doctor says I'm fine. And this is resonating. How can they be connected with functional MD? Well, they can go to functionalmedicine.org. That's probably the best way to do it. That is the Institute for Functional Medicine um, directory. You can just type in your zip code and find a local person. Uh, there's a lot of us that do telehealth. So that's what I've always done. Uh, so you can check what we do out. But there's a lot of great practitioners across the country that are doing it locally as well. That's great. And do you see it as a movement that's really catching on and expanding and growing? Yeah, I really do. I think that it's born out of necessity because you have this interesting thing that I've seen over the past decade 
is earlier on the things that we were saying were pretty radical to many people. The idea that you could lower inflammation with the foods that you ate, the way that you could uh, reverse diabetes or take control of your health, that food impacted your health in some way. It was pretty radical in some ways. And I know that you saw that years ago too. And it's interesting, the evolution of that conversation over the course of the years where I really don't get much pushback at all because it's pretty much people know what's going on more and more. And a really common thing that I hear from my patients, uh, conventional doctors is whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. Because there's really no room for opinion at that point. If you see someone's labs improving, their quality of life improving, what are they going to say? Quit doing that. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. Their quality of life speak for themselves. So it's really not about being for or against. It's like, are you for the person getting healthier? Well, let's give the body time to do that. And if someone's really against that, you need to get a new doctor. Um, because some doctors have that God complex where they'd rather be right than actually see their patient actually improve. But yeah, I see this growing, growing thing. And I think podcasts like this are sparking this longer form conversation and people are seeking, people are immersed in this Dr. Google trying to find answers because they're trying to do, they're doing everything the doctor's telling them to do. I mean, largely people are compliant with what their doctors are telling them to do, but they're not seeing the changes that they're looking to see or they're still spinning their wheels and trying to get answers. So I see that the people are, are awakening and they're looking for answers and that trickle down effect of that's pretty astounding is that doctors like never before, if you look at the Institute for Functional Medicine, most of them are traditionally trained doctors that are going to the Institute for Functional Medicine to actually be trained in this because they are seeing the necessity of their patients. They're having to learn this stuff to be there for their patients. So I'm hopeful. I am hopeful that doctors are looking outside of the box to really be there for their patients in the way that they need it. And speaking of podcasts, aren't you launching your first solo podcast any minute? I am. Thanks for... Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I did Keto Talk, which was like a weird, sciencey, but awesome podcast for three years. And then I was blessed enough to do Goop Fellas with the our best. friend Seamus. Yep. So I thought, you know what? It's I want to have this other conversation. So I'm launching it soon. And I'm what really is excited it called? about it. It's called The Art of Being Well. <laughs> when is it launching? Now. It launches in the new year. So by the time people are hearing this, it'll be launched. Well, Will, it's been such a pleasure being your patient, your friend, your colleague at work, at Thank Google, you. everything. I just, I really appreciate the time today. And I, I just, I have to just reiterate to you and to everybody who's listening, as I'm in the middle of this program, as outlined in your forthcoming book, it's just, it's amazing how, how good I feel. So thank you so much for all the work that went into it. Love and appreciate her. I really can't say enough how much she's been so supportive of me over the years, and I do not take that for granted. If you want to learn more about Gwyneth and all the amazing stuff they're doing at Goop, check them out at goop.com and be sure to order your copy of Intuitive Fasting. You can get Intuitive Fasting on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, support independent bookstores, of course. All the links to all those different places are at drwillcole.com. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. 
As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. All right, now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. This question is from Jen. Jen asks, hi, Dr. Cole. I hear you talk a lot about inflammation, but what is inflammation exactly and how do I know if I have it? Great question, Jen. So let's talk about it. You're right. Inflammation is a a nebulous term. It could be ambiguous. What the heck is it? We kind of know it's not good, right? But what are we talking about in the health world when we refer to it? Remember, or maybe I'm not remembering, but let me make this clear that inflammation is not inherently bad. It's a product of our immune system. It is needed to fight off viruses, fight off bacteria. It's an important part of human physiology. So inflammation inherently isn't bad. It's when inflammation is thrown out of balance when problems arise. So chronic inflammation is typically what we're referring to when doctors or health professionals are referring to Uh, inflammation being not good, that's what we're referring to, chronic inflammation. That's sort of like that forest fire that's burning in perpetuity that's out of balance. And inflammation, just like so many other things in the body, it's subject to the Goldilocks principle, right? Not too high, not too low, but just right. It's homeostasis. So as with our hormones, you don't want hormone excess or dominance of hormones. You don't want deficiencies of hormones either. Same with bacteria and in our gut. You don't want bacterial overgrowth, but you don't want a deficiency of beneficial bacteria either. And then there's so many other examples of that. Same with inflammation. You don't want too high of inflammation. You don't want a deficiency of inflammation either. That's immunosuppression. So you want balance, modulated measured inflammation at the right time when you need it. So it's all about balance and inflammation is definitely subject to that Goldilocks principle. So chronic inflammation is associated with just about every health problem under the sun from autoimmune conditions to metabolic issues to um, type two diabetes to different types of cancer to digestive problems, fibromyalgia, like musculoskeletal issues, arthritis, and to even brain health issues like anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog. There's a whole field of research looking at what's known as the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's looking at how inflammation is impacting brain health issues and how inflammation is impacting mental health. That's a whole other discussion, but we can't separate mental health from physical health. Mental health is physical health and our brain is part of our body. And looking at the neuroinflammatory components to these brain health issues is a part of my job as well. Regardless, all of these issues can have inflammatory components, and it's one thing that we look at as a commonality to these issues, not necessarily causation, even though it causes symptoms. But I use the word commonality very specifically here because we have to ask the question, what's driving the chronic inflammation in the first place? And that's a broad very uh, in-depth topic that I won't get into, but it's a lot of different things. We have to look at food. We have to look at stress. We have to look at trauma. We have to look at chronic infections. We have to look at food reactivities. We have to, all of that stuff, lack of sleep. I could go on and on of things that can drive chronic inflammation. And it's typically not just one driver. It's a confluence of factors. And that's another thing that I work with my patients on as well. Every case is different. So I don't want to make any flippant broad sweeping statements there. We have to look at the stones that are most likely to have something underneath it. So that's what I spend my days working on with patients. So some inflammation markers, the second part of your question, Jen, was to say, well, what? how do I know if I have it? Well, let's talk about subjective and objective ways. Subjectively, 
you could just check in with your body. And that could be, I mean, it's not a lab. It's not the same thing as a lab, but it's at least a good pointer to see if, well, maybe you should talk to your doctor about getting labs done. So there are many free quizzes on drwillcole.com if you want to just go to the quiz section. And they're not a lab. They're not in replacement of going to your doctor or or getting labs done. But they're at least an educational tool to inform yourself on if there may be something going on to then say, okay, maybe I should set up an appointment with my doctor. And we run these labs for people as well. But your local doctor would be great to run a lot of these conventional labs that could see if inflammation levels are an issue. And, you know, obviously the way that we run things in functional medicine, it's not in replacement of a conventional doctor, your PCP or general practitioner. It's not either or, it's both and, and we want to integrate the best of both worlds, just to be clear on that. So let's go over some basic conventional labs that could be one way or a few ways to rule in some chronic inflammation. One C-reactive protein, one of the labs is called C-reactive protein, or specifically high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, or HSCRP. This is an inflammatory marker. We all make it. It's okay. Again, it's not inherently bad, but too high levels can be problematic. So the optimal range in functional medicine is to have it less than one uh, for high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, or HSCRP. We like acronyms in health. I know it's super annoying. The next marker is homocysteine. Homocysteine is another inflammatory marker. Above seven, uh, there's some studies to show that it can act as a neurotoxin and it's associated in certain studies to increase blood-brain barrier permeability or basically contribute to neuroinflammation. Dr. Brednison at UCLA is doing amazing research looking at that and many other studies are exploring this facet as well. Conventionally, homocysteine is looked Uh, more from a cardiovascular uh, increased risk of heart attack and stroke and clotting, but it's just a marker for chronic inflammation. So the optimal range is going to be under seven as far as homocysteine is concerned in functional medicine. And then another conventional lab you could consider um, talking to your doctor about is ferritin. Ferritin is a biomarker for stored iron. So let's be clear on that. But so we want to put it in context with the rest of the iron markers because low iron and low ferritin is not good either, but high ferritin could be an iron overload. So it should be put into context with other iron markers like iron and iron saturation and total iron binding capacity or TIBC. But I will say this, when you've kind of ruled out iron overload or an iron toxicity or hemochromatosis, ferritin, when it's spiked and elevated, it can be considered an acute phase reactant. So basically in states of inflammation, you can see ferritin spike. So those are some conventional labs. White blood count is another one, uh, WBC, white blood cell count. Uh, low white blood cell count could be indicative of chronic inflammation. Spiked high white blood cell count can be a sign of uh, acute inflammatory response. Those are all the conventional labs that we run as well as conventional doctors run. And then in functional medicine, we get a little bit more granular and a bigger deep dive when it comes to these things, things like uh, different microbiome uh, labs, underlying gut issues, looking at chronic infections that can drive uh, inflammation, like different viral issues, Epstein-Barr virus, Lyme disease, and co-infections to Lyme. And some of these, of course, are conventional labs as well, but we're typically running them in the functional medicine setting using conventional labs to understand the context of what's driving the inflammation or what could be a component to driving the inflammation. So that's a very long-winded answer, Jen. I don't know if you wanted me to go into that great detail, but 
I'm happy to do so. I can wax eloquently about inflammation all day long. I think about this stuff even when I'm sleeping, but there you go. There's all the things you need to know about inflammation. That's it for today. Thanks again for hanging out with me. I would love to know what you think about the art of being well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.